Will you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 12? We have been in this wonderful revelation of Jesus Christ since January, and we have now come to this particular passage of Scripture beginning in verse 7. Let me read the text to you. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, And because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. This amazing disclosure the Lord now gives to the beloved apostle on Patmos must have been exhilarating to him. John knew of Satan's temptation of Christ. John was a firsthand witness of numerous encounters with Satan and his minions. Certainly he had watched Christ deliver the two demoniacs and cast those demons into the swine. He had seen firsthand the young boy in Luke 9 who would suddenly scream and then be thrown down to the ground into convulsions, foaming at the mouth, and then a demon would maul the boy. He saw Jesus rebuke that unclean spirit. And healed that boy. He had observed firsthand how Satan had deceived the Gentiles and the Jews of that day. And in horror, he watched Jesus hang on the cross of Calvary, having been betrayed by the demonized Judas and sentenced by Satan's henchmen. And now this 90-year-old apostle of Christ... And therefore, an enemy of Satan is doing hard labor on a little island in a Roman penal colony. And then he receives this news. Satan's going down. Finally, the words of the Lord that he had recorded in John 12, 31 is coming to fruition. Where the Lord said, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. 
Here in our text this morning, John sees and records the beginning of the end of Satan's epical war with the God of glory and all who belong to him. Though it has already been won at Calvary, every soldier of the cross grows weary of this battle. Sometimes the fatigue and the frustration can almost be overwhelming. Someone asked me recently, how can you keep from becoming furious with people who reject the truth? (laughs) And I laughed for a moment, but I I thought, well, frankly, I focus my rage on the one who brought sin into the world and who deceives them. I focus my anger on the father of lies, on the one who disguises himself as an angel of light, the one who roams about the earth seeking whom he can devour the prince in the power of the air, the temporary God of this world, as Paul said in Second Corinthians 4, 4. I focus my anger on the one who goes before the throne of God and accuses believers day and night, as we just read. First, John five nineteen, John recorded the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's where I'll direct my anger. Unbelievers are spiritually dead. It seems rather rather foolish to me to come before a corpse and get mad at it. To scratch out a spot and pitch a fit every time you encounter people who reject the truth or persecute you is ridiculous. But for believers, as we do battle with sin and combat the myriad of temptations that are out there and the attacks that we constantly experience that are Inherent in this world system that God allows Satan to rule. Boy, for us, it's different. There's where our anger can be focused on the one who is the enemy of our souls. We are reminded in Romans 12, verse 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and indeed he will. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, we read that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And Paul tells us as well in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, though we have human limitations, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That's referring to satanic strongholds, strongholds of deception, fortresses of deception. He goes on to say we are destroying speculations, meaning false ideologies. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Beloved, please hear me. We assault systems of deception, not the spirits that concoct them. We don't go around casting out demons. We unleash the gospel of truth, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We are warned... In 2 Corinthians 2.11, to be wary of his schemes. 
Are you wary of his schemes? What he's trying to do to destroy you and your family, and your children. And we are also commanded to give him no opportunity. Ephesians 4:27. But we're not commanded to go around and to do exorcisms and to try to bind Satan and all of those things. Instead, as James tells us in four, chapter four, verse seven, we are to submit to God, resist the devil and he will what flee from you. Thank you, Lord. I will do that. I will submit to you. I will resist him and he'll flee from me. And why will the devil flee from us? Because, beloved, when we are submitting to God, we are filled with the spirit of God. And as John tells us in first John four, four, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We can't fight this war with mystical incantations, binding Satan, rebuking him. I always wondered when you bind him, is that just pleasant view or is that all of middle Tennessee? Is that all of Tennessee? Is that the whole world? If so, how long? I mean, is this going to last for the day or or what? We're not taught to go around and to rebuke him. You don't talk to Satan. You don't talk to demons. You don't write him letters like some of these seminars would have you do. We don't fight the supernatural enemy with human intellect or the power of persuasion. We have to have supernatural weaponry. And that is the power of the word of God and prayer. Don't become a demon buster, dear friends. Put on your armor. Pick up your sword, which is the word of God. And then march on your knees into battle and you will defeat the enemy through the power of God. Live a life that reflects the righteousness of Christ. Knowing all the while that he is a defeated foe. And that's what we read about here today. We can rejoice, as Paul tells us in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We can celebrate knowing what we read in Hebrews 2, 14, that Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And again, John understood all of this. That's why he recorded in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But don't you know, he had to be thrilled to witness now in this vision, Satan being permanently expelled from heaven, knowing that he's going down. I suppose you could call this righteous gloating. So here in the first six verses of John 12, we were introduced last week to the woman who is Israel. The dragon that is Satan and the son that is or the male child that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now this morning we will be introduced to the archangel Michael. Now, let me give you the big picture before we examine the text more closely. The sounding of the seventh trumpet in chapter 11 sets into motion the final judgments that God will pour out upon the world just before he returns. Now, the actual details of those judgments, which are called the bold judgments, are described later on in chapters 15 through 18, when the chronological narrative of the tribulation will resume. And of course, that will lead to the Lord's triumphant return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, where he will return and triumph over Satan once and for all and establish his kingdom. But what we have here in chapters 12 through 14 
is a parenthetical section that chronicles Satan's career. And actually recapitulates all of the events, the judgments and so forth of Revelation 6 through 11. So understand now that the first six verses of chapter 12 provide a sweeping overview of Satan's ancient rebellion and his war with God and his covenant people symbolized by the woman as well as her son, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where we're at today in verses seven through twelve. We find John recording for us this amazing battle that takes place in heaven where Michael is used by God to permanently expel Satan from the presence of God and cast him to the earth. And soon thereafter, we will find that he will be cast into the abyss, the lake of fire, which will be his permanent eternal abode. I've divided these few verses into three parts. We will first see the war in heaven. Secondly, the dragon's defeat. And thirdly, the heavenly celebration. Before we look at it, let me give you one other important fact that I find deeply encouraging. If you will notice, all of this is yet future, though grammatically it is presented in the past tense. You might ask. Why is that? This is because the Spirit of God is using a literary device that was especially popular in that language to describe some future event as though it were already an accomplished fact. In other words, to emphasize the certainty of an event. Grammarians call this a proleptic aorist. And literally what this is, is referring to is the fact that what God is going to do, even though it's described in the past tense, is so absolutely certain that it can be described as having already happened. So much of John's visions are proleptic, again, where future events are so certain they can be described in the past tense. A very important concept that we must keep in mind as we endeavor to understand Bible prophecy. So, number one, the war in heaven, verse seven. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Now, throughout history, Satan and his forces have been at war with God and the holy angels and certainly all those that belong to Beloved, beyond the veil of our earthly existence, there is an angelic war that is going on all the time. In fact, we would be utterly overwhelmed with awe if somehow God chose to peel back the veil of our existence and we could see the angels in this place and around this church. According to Scripture, Satan has a highly organized army of demons that he commands. We read that, for example, in Ephesians 6, verse 12, including those in charge of earthly nations and empires, like the prince of the kingdom of Persia, you will recall in Daniel 10. Remember, 
for 21 days, he withstood a magnificent angel that God sent as a messenger to Daniel until finally, according to the text, quote, Michael, one of the chief princes was dispatched to free him. In both testaments, this archangel Michael is seen as the magnificent champion of God's covenant people, especially the people of Israel, as we read here in Revelation 12. In fact, in Jude verse 9, we see him being described as an archangel who, quote, disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. That story is described in Deuteronomy 34. We can only imagine the nefarious plan that Satan had for Moses' body. And obviously, by the Lord's power, Michael was victorious over Satan. And according to verse 6 in Deuteronomy 34, the Lord buried Moses in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Bet Peor. That was where the Israelites were encamped. And then it concludes saying, but no man knows his burial place to this day. So this is not the first time Michael has encountered Satan and his forces. This is an ancient foe. And scripture is not. I should say scripture is silent regarding how angels fight. We don't know anything really about that. We don't know how they wore the actual tactics that they use. And sometimes it's fun to kind of muse about that. But we, we're just really not told. We're not told the type of casualties they experience. All of that is a mystery. But here we see God dispatching Michael once again, along with this celestial army that Michael leads to wage war with the dragon. In fact, Daniel describes Michael, during these times of Daniel's 70th week, the time of the tribulation, in chapter 12, verse 1, here's what he says. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. There's an important note that we must look at here. Grammatically, the phrase in verse 7, Michael and his angels waging with the dragon, reveals that Satan was the instigator of this conflict. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. It could actually be translated, Michael and his angels had to fight the dragon. Now, we could ask the question, what triggered Satan's attack? What was going on here? And, beloved, here we can only speculate. Some say, well, perhaps this is when the church is raptured, snatched away, when we pass through the territory of the prince and the power of the air. And there's some merit to this. There is no indication here when Satan will actually be expelled or how long the battle will ensue. So perhaps this is the trigger. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So we can't be sure. But since this seems to occur in the middle of the week, in the middle of the tribulation, after Israel has fled into the wilderness for the three and a half years, according to verse six, I think that it's more compelling to argue that the trigger may well be a combination of supernatural victories that we see regarding the two witnesses on earth and God's protection of the 144,000, along with the three angels that we will learn about that are flying in mid heaven in chapter 14. They're flying in mid heaven, making various proclamations of warnings and trying to bring people on the earth to an understanding of Christ. Now, all of these things would be blatant attacks against Satan, against his diabolical plan to destroy God's people and to prevent the establishment of the kingdom. Attacks that would certainly infuriate Satan. But again, we don't really know. But we know it will happen. But notice as well, the end of verse 7. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Obviously, the dragon and his wretched minions are defeated. They're expelled. The cleansing of heaven is now complete, but there yet remains the purification on earth. No longer will God hear his slanders against the redeemed. Now the ancient foe is seething with rage, but his defeat in heaven, frankly, is only a harbinger of a much more thorough defeat that will come. And so now, according to verse 12, knowing his time is short, we see that he will focus his attention on Christians, especially the Jews that are now coming to a saving knowledge of Christ understanding that he is their Messiah. Secondly, we see the dragon's defeat beginning in verse nine and the dragon and the great dragon was thrown down the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. It's interesting. The Lord describes this wicked fiend in five ways. He's called the great dragon underscoring the vicious cruelty of this monster. He is described as the serpent of old, identifying him as the serpent in the garden that tempted Adam and Eve. He is described as the devil. That means the slanderer, the maligner, the one who roams about the earth, collecting evidence to accuse the saints before God's bar of justice. He is described as Satan which is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word Satan that refers to a superhuman adversary. And he's also finally described as he who deceives or literally misleads the whole world. The one who is an absolute genius in seducing people to believe what is false. While at the same time convincing them that it is true. And then when he causes them to fall, he accuses them before God. Deceptions abound today. Every time you turn on the television, 
You go to the Christian bookstore. They're everywhere. People are constantly asking me questions about various things and having me read certain books. There's a new fictional novel that's out today called The Shack. It's on the New York Times bestseller. And many Christians, as well as non-Christians, are bragging about what a wonderful book this is. And I've had a lot of people ask me about it, so I read it. And, beloved, I was astounded at how heretical that book is. It is filled with heresy. It is filled with things that are absolutely blasphemous. By the way, anytime something is wildly popular with the world, go to Matthew 7 and be reminded of the few and the many. There's a narrow gate and there is a broad gate. And whenever you see hordes of people running towards something, be at least a little bit suspicious. I'll talk more about that this evening. But suffice it to say, dear friends, Satan is so ingenious in his counterfeits. And then again, to think that he deceives us through temptations. He tricks us. And then when we yield to temptation and we, we walk into his trap, then he runs and accuses us before God. What a wicked monster he is. As I thought about this, I thought, my... Satan would have no problem finding sin in my life to go before the throne and accuse me. He wouldn't in yours either. I thought of what Paul said in Romans 7. Remember when he evaluated himself as a Christian and he lamented over the effects of remaining sin. He said in verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Don't you know Satan is quick to point all of that out? In verse 31, though, he went on to say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns Christ? Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us Four reasons why we will never be found guilty because of Christ's death, because of his resurrection, because of his exalted position and because he is constantly interceding on our behalf in the courtroom of heaven. Moreover. John tells us in 1 John 2, 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous advocate, parakleton. It means the helper, the one who comes alongside. It's the idea that we have, shall we say, a defense attorney that counters the prosecution of Satan with the righteousness of Christ on which basis We have been declared not guilty. That's wonderful news. Also in verse nine, notice the Lord uses the phrase thrown down. It means to cast down, to forcibly remove or expel. In this context, if I could use our vernacular, this means to manhandle. This is a supernatural body slam. From heaven to earth. Does that put it in perspective? Guys, you understand that. 
And he, he uses this three times to underscore the humiliating, ignominious method of his expulsion. Now, think of it this way. Satan and his minions were not asked to leave. They were not just kicked out. He didn't get the boot. Beloved, he was thrown down. We must understand that he will be overpowered by a vastly superior force and physically hurled from heaven to earth. Now, I've been thrown out of places before. Maybe you have, too. But I've never had anyone pick me up and physically slam me to the ground, especially that distance from heaven to earth. And I confess, I find great satisfaction when I contemplate this scene, and I believe appropriately so. This is actually the first of three humiliating throwdowns for the dragon. At the beginning of the millennium, according to Revelation 20 and verse 1, an angel will come down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And we read that he will lay hold of the dragon. Literally, he's going to seize him. The serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bind him for a thousand years and throw him into the abyss and shut and seal it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then finally, at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial reign, we read in Revelation 20 and verse 10, the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where he will be tormented day and night forever. So here we learn of the dragon's inevitable feet. But notice the reaction in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. This leads us to... My third point this morning, and that is the heavenly celebration. Here, the glorified saints erupt into song. This, by the way, will include us, dear friends. Here we have a little glimpse of what we will do in the future. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Obviously, his relentless and slanderous accusations have fallen on deaf ears. Because we have been declared righteous. As Paul said in Romans 5, 2, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And beloved, here in this heavenly scene, this celebration erupts because now hope has become reality. Because now faith has become sight. Notice they rejoice saying, now the salvation. This is important to understand. This not only includes our personal glorification, but also the final lifting of the curse upon all of creation. As we find described in Revelation 8, verse 19 and following, there's Paul speaks of the, quote, anxious longing of the creation 
waits eagerly for the revealing. There's the apocalypsis waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Who's that? Well, that's us when we return with Christ to share in his glory. All of creation is waiting for that. He goes on to say, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. You must understand that all of creation today, as we read here figuratively, is trying to birth something. It's trying to birth the kingdom, a renovated earth. When the Lord returns to establish his kingdom, he will renovate the earth. He will return it back to Edenic splendor. And at the end of that reign, he will recreate the heavens and the earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. For the eternal state. Now back to verse 10. We also see that we will rejoice in the quote power. Not only salvation, but power. That's referring to the infinite, omnipotent, divine power that will accomplish all of this. And he goes on to say the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. In other words, the authority given to Christ, Jesus, by the Father over all of heaven and earth. Remember in in Matthew 28, including the authority to rule the future earthly kingdom, all of this has now come. And notice, he says, we will rejoice in that these things have come. The grammar here in the original language carries with it the idea That it has now finally, completely, fully, and actually come to fruition. This is cause for the hallelujah chorus. But notice, finally, the basis of our triumph over Satan in verse 11. And they overcame him because of their mystical incantations they used to bind him. No, no. They overcame him because of their exorcisms that they used to cast him out. No, it doesn't say that. How about because of their mystical formulas that they used to rebuke him? Because they went to those seminars and learned how to do that. And they read all of those books that fill our Christian bookstore shelves. They learned how to write letters to speak to Satan. Have you read that? People actually do this type of thing. No, again, James 4, 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. First Peter 5, 9, Peter also speaks of our adversary, the devil, who prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And what does he say after that? But resist him firm in your faith. A Greek military term. We read the same thing in Ephesians six ten. Repeatedly resist and stand firm, resist and stand firm, stand firm in the Lord, in the strength of his might. No, beloved, they overcame him because of two reasons. Number one, the blood of the lamb. This is part of the Christian's armor in Ephesians six that we must wear to be able to resist and stand firm. Remember, we're to take up the helmet of salvation. 
We must remember, as Peter tells us in first Peter 118, that we have been cleansed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. As Paul tells us in Romans three and verse twenty four, we have been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And as Paul tells us in second Corinthians five twenty one, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Romans five, nine, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath or from wrath through him. Beloved, it is because of these things that none of Satan's accusations will stand in the court of law where God exists. Because he now sees us as being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The second reason they overcame is because of the word of their testimony. Grammatically, this portrays the idea, and it could be translated this way, the word of God to which they have borne testimony. Do you want to know how to do battle with Satan and his minions? Bear testimony in your character and conduct to the word of God. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sometimes people will hear me say, well, what about people who are demon possessed? Well, I've encountered many of them on numerous occasions. Some even recently. What do you do? You unleash the gospel. You pray. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Sometimes we think that somehow we've got to do something mystical. Beloved, never underestimate the power of the word of God. Again, as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, the weapons of our warfare, warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What are those weapons? The word and prayer, the word and prayer, Ephesians 6, on and on we see this. This is how every saint overcomes and overpowers Satan and sin and death through the gospel of Christ. I want to give you a great example of this. In John Bunyan's marvelous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, he describes his encounter with the devil. He calls him Apollyon. And after Apollyon had offered him false promises and threatened him and tried to intimidate him and cause him to doubt, he accused Christians saying, quote, you have already been unfaithful in your service to him. Apollyon sneered. How do you think you can receive wages from him? Oh, Apollyon, how have I been unfaithful to him? You weakened in your resolve when you first set out and were nearly choked in the slew of despond. You tried to go wrong ways to get rid of your burden when you should have stayed on course until your prince had taken it off. You sinfully slept and lost your treasured things. You were almost persuaded to go back at the side of, side of the lions. And when you talk of your journey and what you have heard and seen, you inwardly desire recognition for all you say or do. All of that is true, answered Christian, and much more that you have left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these shortcomings possessed me in your country where I participated in them and groaned under their weight. 
I have been sorry for these things and have now received pardon by my prince. Suddenly, Apollyon erupted into a fierce rage, shrieking, I am an enemy of the prince. I hate his person, his laws and his people. I have come out with this purpose to stop you. Apollyon, beware of what you do, warned Christian, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, you had better watch yourself. Then Apollyon spread himself out in such a way as to cover the entire width of the way and challenged him. I am without fear in this matter. Prepare to die, for I swear by my infernal dwelling that you shall go no farther. I will destroy your soul right here. And at that he hurled a flaming arrow at Christian's heart. But Christian had a shield in his hand with which he blocked the arrow. Then Christian drew his sword and roused himself for battle. Apollyon, with feverish pace, began throwing arrows as thick as hail. It was all Christian could do to avoid them. And even so, he was wounded in his head, his hand and his foot. This caused Christian to retreat somewhat. Seeing this, Apollyon fell upon him with full and sudden fury. Christian regained his courage, however, and resisted as gallantly as he could. This fierce combat went on for more than a half a day until Christian's strength was almost completely spent. Because of his wounds, he grew weaker and weaker. Apollyon saw his most opportune moment and drew up close to Christian. He began to wrestle with Christian and threw him forcefully to the ground. And Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Gloating, Apollyon said, I am sure I have you now. With that, he assaulted Christian nearly to the point of death so that he began to despair of life itself. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was preparing to strike his final blow to completely annihilate his foe, Christian quickly stretched out his hand and grabbed his sword, saying, Do not gloat over me, my enemy, though I have fallen, I will rise again. With that, Christian gave Apollyon a deadly thrust that made him fall back as if mortally wounded. Seeing this, Christian attacked again, saying, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Apollyon then spread his dragon wings and sped away in defeat. And Christian would see him no more. Then Bunyan writes this. A more unequal match could there be. Christian must fight an angel, but you see the valiant man by wielding sword and shield does make him, though a dragon, quit the field. End quote. Oh, dear child of God, never underestimate the power of God in doing battle with the enemy. Wear the whole armor of God. I'll speak on that more tonight. Take up the shield of faith and wield your sword, the word of God, with precision. And you will parry the blows of the enemy. Yes, according to verse 11, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. I love what Robert Thomas commented on this phrase. He said, quote, this pictures the future heroism of these saints. They will put their lives on the line out of loyalty to Christ. Paul, too, had this attitude, as did Jesus himself. They will not love their earthly life. They will consent even to die, possibly a violent death rather than relinquish their profession and fidelity to Christ. 
being ready to die for their faith is the ultimate in Christian faithfulness, end quote. Beloved, I hope this describes you. All who name the name of Christ as Savior and Lord. The final stanza of this hymn of heavenly celebration concludes in verse 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. In other words, all of the inhabitants of heaven can now breathe a sigh of, breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that Satan is gone. He is vanquished from heaven forever. Have you ever had to work around a person or worse yet, worship with a person whose goal in life is to make you miserable? Whose goal in life is to slander you and criticize you and abuse you? You remember the day that that wicked person was removed? <laughs> Multiply that abuse and subsequent celebration a million fold. And you will just barely begin to approximate the jubilation of this heavenly throng of worshipers. But the end of verse 12, woe to the earth because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. Yes, he's permanently expelled from heaven. He's thrown down to earth. And no doubt the earth is surrounded or will be surrounded at this time by a host of angelic forces to keep all of them on earth. But now Satan will be consumed with fury, having great wrath, knowing his time is short. The final three and a half years where he will vent his spleen on Israel and all who belong to God. Again, keep in mind, Satan's number one priority at this time will be to prevent the establishment of the kingdom by eliminating the people of promise. Notice verse 13. <laughs> and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, referring to Israel. But beloved, he will not succeed. I close with this thought. The Guinness Book of Records lists the Jews as the most ancient minority in the world. No other people group in history have experienced and survived such relentless persecution. But this is not some curious coincidence, beloved. Like the burning bush that could not be consumed, out of which the Lord promised Moses that he would deliver his suffering people from the oppression of Egypt. Israel's sojourn through history would likewise be lived in the flames of suffering, but they will never be consumed. God is faithful to his covenant promises. And beloved, please hear this. God's faithfulness to his ancient covenant people is a glorious picture of his faithfulness to us. So we rejoice in these wonderful truths. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your word. Apply it to our heart. Cause us to live in light of the coming of your glory. And bring special conviction to those who do not know you as Savior. O oh Lord, overwhelm them with the guilt of their sin that they might run to you for the forgiveness that you will give. I ask this in your precious name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. 
You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.